Part nine of Washington and the Riddle of Peace by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Future of Japan. Washington, November eighteen. If we adopt as our guiding principle that China is worthwhile, if we make up our minds, and it seems to me that the American public at least is making up its mind, that China is to bring itself up to date, and to reorganize itself as a great union of states under purely Chinese control, and that it is to be protected by mutual agreement among the powers from outside interference during the age of reorganization, then it is clear that all dreams of empire in China, or any fragments of China on the part of any other power, must cease. This building up of a united peaceful China, by the conscious self-denying action of the chief powers of the world, is evidently, under present conditions, the only sane policy before the powers assembled at Washington but it is, unhappily, quite diametrically opposed to all traditions of competitive nationality. And I find a most extraordinary conflict going on in men's minds here in Washington, between the manifest sanities of the world's situation, and those habits of thought and action in which we have all been bred. Competitive nationalism and the long-established competitive traditions of European diplomacy have gone far toward wrecking the world, and they may yet go far toward wrecking the Washington Conference. We have all got these traditions strong in us, every one of us. These traditions, these ideas of international intercourse as a sort of game to beat the other fellow, have as tough a vitality as the appetite of the wasp, which will go on eating greedily after its abdomen has been cut off. Indeed, some of the representatives of the powers at Washington seem still to be clinging to the ambition of finally devouring China, or large parts of China, a feast which they will not have the remotest prospect of digesting. If that sort of thing goes on, a continuation of war preparation, a renewal of war and the consummation of the social smash now in progress is inevitable yet on the face of that plain inevitable consequence my diplomatic friends in washington go on talking about such insane projects as that of ceding manchuria to japan right down the great wall of giving japan practical possession of the mines of china of giving compensation in the matter of chinese railways to france of getting this advantage or that for great britain and so forth and so on I remain permanently astounded before the Foreign Office officials. They have such excellent, brilliant minds, but, alas, so highly specialized, so highly specialized, that at times one doubts whether they have, in the general sense of the word, any minds at all. In the face of the universal hopefulness for satisfactory results from the conference, I find myself full of doubts. The naval disarmament proposal of Secretary Hughes was obviously meant only as the opening proposition, the quite splendid opening proposition, of the conference. The second meeting, I felt, would find Mr. Balfour and Admiral Cato, and Mr. Briand, in eloquent sympathy, saying, Certainly, all this and more also we can do on the understanding that a stable, explicit, exhaustive, permanent Pacific agreement can be framed by this conference that will remove all causes of war whatever. 
but the second meeting was disappointing one nation after another agreed as mr balfour that old parliamentary hand put it in principle but and now we are all playing four-handed chess with reservations about dockyards naval stations cruisers large submarines and the like we are all trying to put the effective disarmament on to the other fellow meanwhile the nine powers are sitting in secret session on the pacific question and it is clear from the rumours that nine-handed chess is in progress there yet the fact plain enough to any one who is not lost in the game of diplomacy is that this conference is an occasion for generosity and renunciation there is no way out of the pacific imbroglio except to disentangle china and form a self-denying ordinance of all the powers concerned to leave her alone while she reconstructs i submit that even japan most intent of all the chess players will do best to fall in line with such a plan would a world covenant to protect china from aggression and to concede her the progressive abolition of extraterritorial privileges and the same unlimited rights over her own railways and soil and revenue that are enjoyed by the americans and japanese over theirs be any serious harm to japan would it not release japan from her imitative career as a pseudo-britain or a pseudo-germany and enable her to get on with her own proper business which is to be to the fullest completest and richest extent japan for what after all is it that japan wants she wants safety she declares just as france wants safety she wants safety to be japan just as france wants safety to be france and england wants safety to be england and she makes these declarations with considerable justification for three hundred years she believed she had that safety, and we must admit she was the least dangerous state in the whole world. For three hundred years Japan waged no foreign wars. She was a peaceful, self-contained hermit. It was American enterprise that dragged her out of her seclusion, and fear of Europe that drove her to the practices of modern imperialism. They are not natural Japanese practices she fought china and grabbed korea because otherwise russia would have held it like a pistol at her throat she fought russia because otherwise russia would have held manchuria and port arthur against her she fought in the great war to oust germany from shantung she is now pursuing an entirely european policy in china intriguing to get a free hand in manchuria and eastern siberia scheming for concessions privileges and the creation of obedient puppet governments in a dismembered china planning to divert the natural resources of china to her own use primarily because she fears that otherwise these things will be done by rival powers and she will be cut off from trade from raw materials and all prosperity until at last when she is sufficiently starved and enfeebled she will be attacked and India-ized. These are reasonable, honourable fears. They oblige her to keep armed and aggressive. Hers is an offensive defensive. There is no other way of allaying her reasonable, just fears except by a permanent binding association of world powers to put an end forever to the headlong scramble for Asia that began a century and a half ago in India between the French and English, 
to recognize frankly and to put upon record that that phase of history has closed and to provide some effective means of restoration now and the prevention of fresh aggressions in the future no doubt there is a military caste in japan loving war and not even dreading modern war we have to reckon with that when we ask japan to release china we ask for something very much against japanese habits of thought her dominant military note is due both to ancient traditions and recent experience japan had most of the fun and little of the bitterness of the great war and her people may conceivably have a lighter attitude toward aggressive war than any european nation but if the alternatives presented to her were on the one hand disarmament and a self-denying ordinance of the powers in relation to china and on the other war against the other chief powers of the world i doubt if the patriotism of even the most war-loving japanese would not outbalance his war-lust and i cannot imagine any other permanent settlement of the pacific situation except a self-denying ordinance to which japan america and the european powers can ever possibly agree now japan disarmed and pledged and self-restrained by treaties and associations against aggression on the mainland of asia would nevertheless reap enormous benefits from the liberation of china given just and reasonable treaties she can do very well without armaments her geographical position would make her naturally and properly the first merchant and the first customer of a renascent china she would have the first bid for all the coal and ore and foodstuffs she needed american goods and european goods would have to come past her over thousands of miles of sea chinese goods that didn't come to her would go elsewhere up a steep hill of freight charges it is a preposterous imagination that china would refuse to sell to her nearest and best customer moreover japan's artistic and literary culture at once so distinctive and so sympathetic with that of china would receive enormous stimulation as it has done in the past by a chinese revival japan would be able to keep in the van of nations not by that headlong imitation and adoption of european devices into which circumstances have forced her hitherto but by a natural and orderly development of her own idiosyncrasies in the face of the enhanced power that modern resources supply an association of japan with other nations to ensure uninterrupted development to china would ensure that to japan also it would be a mutual assurance of peace and security but there is one set of facts and one only that militates against this idea of a pacific and progressive japan a splendid leader in civilization amidst a brotherhood of nations and that is this that japan is already overpopulated she has to import not only food but industrial raw material and that her population increases now by the tremendous figure of half a million a year that is the reality that gives substance to the aggressive imperialism of japan that is why she casts about for such regions of expansion as eastern siberia a region not represented at the conference and so beyond its purview and that is why she covets some preferential control in chinese metals and minerals and food were it not for this steady invasion of the world by hungry lives the principle of japan for the japanese china for the chinese england for the english 
Eastern Siberia for its own people, would give us the simplest, most satisfactory principle for international peace. But Japan teems. Has any country a right to slop its population over and beyond its boundaries, or to claim trade and food because of its heedless self-congestion? Diplomacy is curiously mealy-mouthed about many things. I have made a British official here blush at the words of birth control. But it is a fact that this aggressive fecundity of peoples is something that can be changed and restrained within a country, and that this sort of modesty and innocence that leads to a morbid development of population and to great wars calls for intelligent discouragement in international relations. Japan has modernized itself in many respects, but its social organization, its family system, is a very ancient and primitive one, involving an extreme domestication of women and a maximum of babies. While the sanitation and hygiene of Japan were still medieval, a sufficient proportion of these babies died soon and prevented any overpressure of population. But now that Japan has modernized itself in most respects, it needs to modernize itself in this respect also. I submit that the troubles arising from excessive fecundity within a country justify not an aggressive imperialism on the part of that country, but a sufficient amount of birth control within its proper boundaries. End of Part 9